you, you can't solve account-based marketing with a tool. Uh, it's a way of doing marketing. It's not a platform. You can have account-based marketing platforms to help you, but it's all about human beings. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Thursday, and in these episodes, we focus on one of two things. We'll either be sharing one of our favorite and most actionable talks from a Flip My Funnel event, or you'll hear Sangram and someone from the Terminus team discuss how they're getting better in a specific functional area of Terminus's business. And remember, like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Hello, Flip My Funnel, and welcome to another episode of Enterprise ABM, where we're digging deep into what account-based marketing looks like in some really large, complex, distributed organizations. Over the course of this series, we've had some fantastic conversations with some really, really interesting sales and marketing leaders in these large organizations. When we recorded this conversation, Nick Panay was Vice President, Brand, Demand, and Digital Marketing at DXC Technology. He's now CMO at IPsoft, a leader in cognitive conversational AI solutions for the enterprise. And he's taken some of the best practices he describes here into his new role. Welcome, Nick. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your role and also about DXC? Because I don't think it's a company name that is on the tip of everyone's tongues. Sure, Steve. Thank you uh, so much for making the time. And I, uh, I look forward to our conversation. So. Yes, my name is Nick Panay. I run uh, brand, digital, and demand marketing uh, here at DXC Technology. It is a global function. It is a function that is considered very much a shared service. So we serve all regions, industries, and BU marketing teams. And we do a number of different things that are related. One is the topic of this conversation, which is, of course, account-based marketing and pursuit marketing. We also handle digital marketing, in essence, the digital infrastructure and the business processes aligned with that. Uh, social media marketing, uh, we own the brand as well, and a few other things in between. DXC Technology is what I call a two-year-old company, but it's really a 60-year-old startup, right? So it's a, a two-year brand, but it's a, a result of the merge of two industry giants, uh, Computer Sciences Corporation, or CSC with a 60-year legacy, as well as HPE Enterprise Services with another 60-year legacy. So the two came together about two years ago to form DXC Technology. It is an IP services leader, uh, focusing on next-generation services for our clients. Everything from, of course, digital transformation, which is the bigger movement right now, but apps modernization, cloud, cybersecurity, analytics, uh, big data, all the things that you would think are necessary to digitally transform today's uh, corporations. And how many employees are there at DXC and roughly how many or how large is the marketing team? The company is about 135,000 people uh, globally, the 20, $21 billion corporation. We don't share the exact numbers in terms of the marketing organization. It's smaller than you think for a company of 135,000 people. So we have what we call a highly matrixed type of model 
we work closely with the various functions, but we also leverage uh, agencies in a pretty significant way. Fantastic. Well, we're going to dig more into the structure of things a little later on, because that's always a really interesting part of a conversation with anyone leading teams in large organizations. But before we get to that, I want to go back in time a little bit. You've been around the ABM scene longer than most of us. As I was prepping myself for this conversation, I was out looking for every mention of you and uh, talks you've given, videos, podcasts, what have you. I came across a video from almost five years ago, you talking about account-based marketing. And kudos to you for being in there before the vast majority of people were. What brought you to ABM? You know, sort of when and why, and why has it become such an important part of your career over those years? Yeah, that's a great question. Now you're bringing me back in time. That was about the time where, that we launched our account-based marketing practice at CSC, which is now DXC Technology. But frankly, we've been talking about account-based marketing for even longer than that, right? At, at the more conceptual level. I think about that time was when the technology allowed us to really activate some of these tactics in a very, very focused way. The tactics that we thought about before, but we couldn't really activate because of the technology. And we'll get into more detail. But I would say there are two primary reasons uh, for why we actually moved forward with that. Uh, one, uh, for a company of our size and a company of our nature, we sell IT services solutions to very large companies, very complex environments. This is where the money is, right? The money is in big, big deals with big, big customers. So the number of engagements that we have is significantly less than any other company in B2C or anything like that that's doing much, much smaller construct but a large volume of deals. In our case, it's lesser volume of deals but really high value. So by definition, either a deal or an account that's important warrants having dedicated marketing resources because there's a lot of money on the line. It's a simple a simple financial calculus as that. The other reason, which is also financial in nature, but in a different way, is that budgets have been getting squeezed as long as I remember. Actually, you know, it's not true. I, I remember days when I started out in marketing that the question was, what will you do with your additional 3 to 5% increase this year? Okay, so somewhere down the line, that conversation flipped, and it hasn't flipped back. And, you know, it's always the last, I don't know, 20 years and 15 years have been, how are you going to get done what I'm asking you to get done with 15 to 20% less budget as opposed to the other way around? So when, when the blood bank comes around in terms of budget squeeze, you know, you keep asking yourself, what should I do? What's the most important thing? What should I do first? What's below the line, right? So when we were having one of those budget discussions, we said, look, you know, it's inevitable that we're going to keep getting squeezed. Might as well just put the money where the biggest impact is. So ABM was born out of really necessity as well as opportunity. It was a combination of budget squeeze as well as that's where the money is at for us from a, from a revenue density standpoint. You know? And I want to take you back a moment. You said when there's really big deals in play, that is a time that 
ABM is particularly appropriate. And I've heard you speak about the power of pursuit marketing. And, you know, certainly my understanding of pursuit marketing is, is it's really a time-limited focus on a specific deal that's in play, really trying to positively influence a specific deal. So first off, am I understanding pursuit marketing the same way you do? And second of all, is that where you really started your ABM career is in, in a deal-centric pursuit marketing as opposed to starting with an ideal account profile and you know, identifying a, a universe of certain accounts you wanted to move and so forth, which is where, frankly, a lot of organizations start. Did you come into it with pursuit marketing first? No, we got there. And there's a, there's a bit of a funny story behind that, right? So we started out, as you described, m- much like everybody else does. It says, hey, 80-20 rule, let's focus on the 20% of those customers that bring us 80% of the revenue. Let's identify those customers. And when we started out, we identified X, I forget what it was, like three or 400 accounts that really, really mattered. And we set out to create a, an account-based marketing practice. Little problem was that we didn't have enough headcount to do true ABM for 600 accounts. You know, because if you really think about a ratio, optimally you should be at like between one to three to one to six in terms of marketer to accounts. So you know, having you know three, four, five hundred accounts to worry about means 100 ABMers, which we didn't have at that point. So we started to solve the problem in a very wrong way, turned out, which was thinking of ABM as a platform. So we assigned somebody to be the ABM leader who happens to be the same person who's running my my ABM team now and basically said, great, you got an ABM program. Uh, Let's go get a platform so that the sales teams can, in essence, not do their own marketing, but start to think about ABM in a programmatic way. So let's put a platform out there that scrapes the internet and comes up with, you know, great intelligence about those accounts. Then we'll work with the regions and put in marketing plans in there and the sales team would absolutely love it. And they'll be doing account-based marketing with a little bit of guidance from them, which was obviously looking back at it, you know, a a pretty ridiculous way to think about things because you you can't solve account-based marketing with a tool. It's a way of doing marketing. It's not a platform. You can have account-based marketing platforms to help you, but it's all about human beings. It's all about high-touch, smart marketers working very closely with sales, aided by technology. Not technology to begin with, uh, but technology as as an aid. So, of course, inevitably kind of fell flat on its face because what happens is you have the shiny object uh, syndrome in sales. Everybody gets all excited. First month, you see a huge spike. Second month's a little bit lower. Third month is like you hear crickets in there. So, you know, you know, we had the million-dollar platform and nobody using it other than a few of us in marketing. So that was kind of the wrong thing to do. At the same time, we were literally feeling the squeeze in terms of budget. And it was like, hey, are we going to let go of this ABM thing? And I, I didn't want to do that because I knew I felt in my gut that it was absolutely the right thing to do. So we did a little bit of internal rebranding. We thought, well, how is it that we can position this where we can have fewer accounts to deal with? Call it what it really is that the salespeople pay attention to. And at that point, they were using the term pursuit, still are, to be a strategic pursuit, to be over $100 million, big deals. 
So we said, great, it's not account-based marketing, it's pursuit marketing, number one. So that's, that was the first kind of rebranding of the exercise. Second, we're not going to deal with three or 400 of them. We're going to deal with as many as we can handle with the headcount. So we started out with one and we added two or three people. So great, three people can handle two or three pursuits at any given point in time, so we can handle 10 pursuits. So let's go prove to the company that we can actually be a significant positive force in closing these deals. Then the company will invest in us doing more pursuit marketing and then eventually doing evergreen account-based marketing. And that's exactly how it happened. And we proved it out one deal at a time. And by the way, these big pursuits, think about it, right? If it's $100 million, you're going to put your best salespeople on it. These best salespeople are also the most vocal. So when you help them close a deal, they'll tell the world. If you don't help them, they'll also tell the world, by the way, which doesn't help. But if you help them and it, and it closes, they become such a positive amplifier of what pursuit marketing is all about that it created some momentum. And that's how we did it. And eventually, the company was basically comfortable saying, okay, great, let's invest X number of dollars to go bring enough marketers to handle 100 accounts at any given point in time. So that's how we scaled it. I, th I think pursuit marketing is such a fascinating practice because it makes so much sense in one way. You know, there's a big deal in play. Let's get in there and positively influence it. But at the same time, a lot of organizations shut off marketing the moment there is a deal in play because there's a lot of fear. You've, you've got a sales guy who says, look, I own this deal. I know what needs to happen. Me or me and my team, whatever the case may be, we got this. And the last thing we want is marketing coming in and screwing things up for us. How do you navigate those waters? And how do you get started? I, I would imagine that once you've positively influenced a number of deals, and as you said, you've got some top sales guys telling the world that it gets a lot easier. But how do you get started, especially if there is some of that resistance? Yeah, so you hit the dynamic spot on, right? So if you attempt to do a, what I call like a, a drive-by marketing exercise where, you know, you just hanging around and then when it gets to a certain point, you're driving by and say, hey, you know, I got a marketing campaign for you and they don't know you from Adam, number one. Number two, they try at that point to minimize risk. So the last thing is gonna, they're going to do is basically experiment with some marketing guy that's telling them they're going to help them, right? So this is all about trust. And the only way you're going to gain trust is if you're there from the very beginning and you help them understand that uh, marketing is not a single tactic or two tactics or three tactics. Marketing is a cadence of engaging with their customer when and if necessary, but also understanding their customer, feeding them intelligence, helping them build in essence a messaging plan. You don't have to be that, that visible to the account. You can do fantastic account-based marketing and the account will never know you were there because you do it in a very subtle, careful way. You do it by working with the sales team to line up with the strategy. So every step you take is in lockstep with the sales strategy and the sales approach. They need to see you as a virtual extension of their team. I even use the term embedded marketer, just like we do with journalists embedding with the troops in the middle of a in the middle of a war zone, it's the same thing. You know, that embedded journalist wears a helmet, sometimes even holds a weapon, and works with the team and feels the same pain if they get hit with a bullet as a sales team, right? Same 
thing with us. We're embedded marketers in that sales team. We'll get involved way in the beginning, what I call the glimmer in the eye stage, when somebody is like going after a particular deal. Uh, but we're part of the whole process from the beginning. Therefore, we know we have the same sensitivity they do of when to speak and when not to speak. When to give them just to give them intelligence versus to give them an idea for a tactic or a campaign. You need to be embedded with them. And when you get that trust, just like they, they trust the salesperson to go give a fantastic pitch to the customer, they trust the marketing person to do things very carefully and very thoughtfully. You mentioned tactics and campaigns. So tell us what sorts of tactics and campaigns these embedded marketers bring to bear in a pursuit marketing play in order to positively influence those deals. Yeah, one of the things that we help people understand right out of the gate is demand gen- or tactics in general, marketing tactics in general that you do for marketing in general are the same marketing tactics that you bring to bear for pursuit marketing or account-based marketing. They just happen to be finely tuned and aligned with that account or that pursuit. There isn't a tactic that we do in the marketing world that we can't somehow tailor make for that account or for that pursuit. And that's how sometimes we challenge the thought process that says, oh, you know, account-based marketing basically means that, you know, you send them an email to those five individuals or you take them out to dinner or do anything like that. But, you know, we challenge it by saying, look, with technology now and with, with a lot of creativity and a lot of great agencies, there's nothing stopping you from taking even a vehicle that most people think is the most mass market of all vehicles, mass marketing tactic of all, of all vehicles, which is like outdoor advertising, and say, we can, we can make that work for pursuit, right? Why, why, why couldn't I go take out a billboard outside of their headquarters for three weeks? You know, I, I, I can do that for the same amount of money that the sales team pays for wine when they take their customer out, you know? It's, it's highly, highly cost-effective, and I could put it right outside their door, and as far as they're concerned, they're coming in the morning and going out at night, seeing my brand in front of their face on a daily basis. To them, it looks like, you know, who is this DXE company and why? Oh, by the way, if I extend it a little bit more and do some geo-targeting, so I can actually hit their mobile phones with targeted advertising within a mile radius of the headquarters, and maybe I can even put some ads in the regional airport that their executives flying in and out of, uh, and maybe I hit a couple of train stations, all of a sudden it looks like we're all over the place. Whereas all we're doing is we're targeting that particular account. That's just one example. Every single marketing tactic out there can be fine-tuned and tailored with a little bit of smart and a little bit of technology for pursuit marketing and for, and for ABM. When you're doing that sort of surround play in pursuit marketing, is it general branding that you're doing? You know, you said, hey, look, look you know, these guys must be everywhere because I see them everywhere. Does it sometimes go beyond that? I mean, are you actually dialing in on specific value props that are key to this deal, specific product or service offerings? Like, are, are you dialing it in really to the deal or are you just surrounding the other uh, participant in this deal? Here's the beauty of it is you can dial it in to whatever it is that the sales strategy suggests, right? So most of our pursuits 
have a challenge, you know, because we're relatively new company. DXE is a new brand. You know, there's a lot of companies out there that don't know DXE. They may know CSC, they may know HPE Enterprise Services, they don't know DXE. So our salespeople going after some of these big pursuits may be at a bit of a disadvantage, you know. So most of the time, it's just basic brand awareness, you know. So, you know, for me to wait until our brand has 10 years worth of brand advertising behind it to get to the same level that other companies, you know, it would take 10 years versus saying, okay, let's micro-target particular locations or particular executives or particular groups with brand advertising to, in essence, accelerate their brand awareness and brand consideration more so than you could with a big brand campaign, right? So that's number one. Most of them want that as a basic foundation. There's others who are, uh, you know, who are basically comfortable with that at the beginning, but as, as the deal progresses forward and they go through the various stages and they go from a long list to a short list, you know, in terms of the opportunity, they're now comfortable to start to put particular solution messaging around that account. And, you know, we can do that. We can, again, whether it's LinkedIn advertising or, uh, you know, reverse IP with demand base or anything else on the website that we can do, we can tune it in and basically say, start to talk about cloud solutions to the company that we know has an open RFP for cloud and that's what we're competing on. So therefore, that's what's top of mind. We can even take it to the next level and acknowledge and name them in the ad. It's like, hey, company ABC, great to be working with you. Look forward to, you know, a long future together. You know, those, as, as I go through those three scenarios, from the beginning to the end, the numbers get much more small because, yes, you can do that. At the same time, you can also spook a couple of customers and screw up a, you know, multi-media just so that you can get cute and call them out in the app. That would be a career limiting move, right, for a few of us if we ever did that. So we only do that if the sales the sales team, the sales strategy calls for it, and the sales team is comfortable at that point in time reaching out at that level, then we can do that. We follow closely to sales strategy, which is why it's important for us to be in early and in deep so that we know all of those things. We understand all of those dynamics. And we can dial in the right messaging, the right targeting at the right time. Right on. Hey, shifting gears a little bit. You said free your content, ungate everything. Now, this is a topic that gets debated, I would dare say argued, uh, a lot in a lot of organization. To gate or not to gate, perhaps what to gate. Maybe it's not an all or nothing decision. You're saying or at least I believe you advocate for freeing all your content, ungating everything. Now, first off, am I correct in that that is your position? And if so, I I think some people are going to fundamentally disagree with you because they actually believe that those form fills are valuable starting points for their sales dev team and they've seen those deals mature. And others might philosophically agree with you, but the metrics that they're held to their comp plans aren't going to let them do that because they're held to some MQL requirements or, or something similar to that. So first off, am I getting you right that you're saying no gates at all? And if so, 
what's your advice to those who disagree with you or, or how would you, how would you speak to those who disagree with you? And also maybe what advice would you give to those who want to agree with you, but just kind of can't? Yeah. So this is a, not only an active topic and seminars and presentations that I participate in, but it's an active topic inside this company as well. So the answer is to your question is yes, I advocate that. Uh, and not only do I advocate it, uh, I acted on it. So, you know, we turn off every single registration wall on our website. So we talk about, you know, kind of ripping the Band-Aid off. We went down that path. And here's why. And again, the debate continues. So not only do, do a lot of people not agree with me outside the company, there's a lot of people who don't agree with me inside the company. So it's an active but again, it's a, I think it comes with every time there's an inflection point in any industry, in anything that you do, you're going to have some level of pain associated with it. But ignoring it is like putting your head in the sand uh, and keep doing things the way you were doing them because you used to do them. And that's what people's old KPI said. That other thing is just the wrong way to do it. So here's the primary reasons why I did it. Number one. Any area deserves a deep introspection every single time. Everything that we do should be just analyzed and like, yeah, I know we did it that way before, but why are we doing it? So one of the aha moments that I had the last really two, three years was how dramatically more difficult it has become to get people to engage with your marketing outreach. You know, so we all build these big marketing databases, then over time, your open rates and your click-through rates and everything else have gone dramatically lower than they used to be. One, it's a crowded market. Two, everybody just sick and tired of just email filling in their, uh, their email box every day. Uh, and somehow we became comfortable with 0.2% or 1% click-through rates being a good thing. And I challenge people, say, in what aspect of our lives is 99% failure a good thing? How is that a good thing? How do we feel good about ourselves walking around, sending emails to our CMO and everybody else and say, hey, look at us. We got 2% click-through rate. That is just ridiculously low. That basically means 98% of the people couldn't care less about what you say, right? So to me, that, that's a problem. Fundamentally, that, that's a problem. Number two, you have GDPR, right? With GDPR, you know, you have yet another motivation to be super careful about asking people for information, right? Even though the law is relatively gray in that area, you're not really supposed to strong arm people into giving you their information. And the way I see registration walls in front of content, it is basically like strong arming somebody saying, look, I got this content for you, but you know, I'm just showing it to you from a distance. And the only way you're going to read it is if you give me your information. To me, that's almost like going on a date and asking somebody to get married before they even like, out of the first two sentences. It doesn't make any sense. I don't know if your content is good enough. Why don't you wait until I read your content? And if I like it, then I'll sign up for your newsletter, right? So the way I see it, that's a more fair value exchange. Let me engage with your content and I will give you my information if I see enough value in that. So it's this dynamics and the fact that GDPR could nail you with a 4% of your revenue as um, as a penalty, you know, if you kind of screw up the GDPR, basically legislation, or 
if you have some sort of a, a gray area and it, you create for your company a big PR issue, especially an IT services company, you know, going around, you know, strong arming people into giving them information so they can spam them later, to me is not a good marketing message for the fact that we sell IT services and GDPR consulting. So I don't see this as a good risk reward value. Getting a few hundred more people in your database that, by the way, you know, indicate their name to be Mickey Mouse based in Orlando, Florida, and never respond to your email is not a good balance between that and getting nailed with a 4% you know, penalty of revenue. By the way, if you're a $20 billion company, 4% adds up pretty quickly to be pretty much the biggest strategic mistake ever made by any marketing organization anywhere. So I just don't think it's a good balance of risk and reward. Final thing I would say, Steve, is I think this gated content and the fact that you strong arm people into giving you their information gives people a false marketers, a false sense of accomplishment that they got quote unquote leads. Those are not leads. Those are registrants. I don't know of anyone who reads a white paper and at the conclusion of the white paper picks up the phone and buys something. It just doesn't work that way. You know, they don't wake up one morning, read a white paper, and decide they're going to do cloud migration solutions. So they, if, if they're not idiots. If, if they want to talk to sales, they're going to go to your contact us form and say, I want to talk to sales. If they want to read a white paper, let them read a white paper. If they like it, then offer them an opportunity to register for your newsletter, and then they'll get more of it after that. That's the way I see it. Not everybody sees it that way, but to me, that's kind of a, it's an interesting inflection point that we have to face for ourselves and stop living in yesterday's world. Now, does, does that approach, is, does that work for you because you are very focused on large-scale ABM, like one-to-one ABM, you're very focused on pursuit marketing, and broader base demand gen just isn't strategically important to your organization? Or is broader base demand gen strategically important and you just do it in a different way, a way that doesn't require a whole lot of form fills? I, it's the latter. I think, you know, anybody and everybody in marketing wants to get more people to follow them or read their content. So we want it just as much as everybody else. But I don't want it at the expense of people's privacy and I don't want it in the wrong state. I don't want people to be giving me their information in the wrong state of mind. I want the people who give me their information to truly want to hear from me as opposed to read a white paper. If they really want to hear from me, I'd much rather deal with a database that is a tenth or a hundredth of the size that it was before, but I know it's the database of people who really want to hear from me. So all of a sudden, you're more respectful of their time and effort, they're more engaged, and you have a more reasonable understanding of what a true KPI is versus some number we all feel great about that you have a 1,000 people who signed up for your newsletter, and next time you send something, they don't respond because they just wanted to white paper. Going back to a topic we touched on at the outset, how's the marketing team structured to support ABM and pursuit marketing in a company of your scale? So we have the ABM and pursuit marketing team as part of an organization I call marketing programs intentionally. And the marketing programs has 
not only the responsibility, the marketing programs team has the responsibility to do ABM and pursuit marketing, but also the big team management campaigns for the company. And the reason we did it that way is because at the end of the day, I wanted the skill sets of these people to, to stay fresh and be interchangeable, right? So if I hire somebody who is a really good generalist, that generalist should be able to work with an agency and do a demand gen campaign just as well as they can work with an account and do a pursuit marketing campaign. And you manage the ebbs and flows of the organization that way because sometimes you have a lot of pursuits and sometimes you have less pursuits. Sometimes you have very active ABM accounts and sometimes you have less active ABM accounts. So that way we flex the bandwidth of that team and keep them cross-trained on both campaigns as well as pursuit marketing and ABM. The, um, the, the team is about, about 20 or so strong right now. Again, they manage average from three to five either accounts or pursuits at any given point in time and they work on marketing programs um, at the same time. The other thing that we've done here that I think is important is that we've put this organization as part of my team very, very close to other teams that they can leverage. For example, they're close to the brand team, right? If they need to go stretch a little bit the brand messaging and do something that's very, very specific to that particular account and they need to get permission to do the one-off, the brand team is in the same organization. If they need to go build a a landing page on the website. The digital marketing team is on my team as well. They work very closely together. It doesn't have to be all in the same organization, but it helps speed things up. And then, of course, we have very, very strong relationships with the content hub, people that help us write, you know, a bespoke white, white paper if we needed to and aim it at a particular account or the social team, which is an organization as well. If we wanted to do a social outreach to a very specific set of executives. So I think having these people in a position where they can leverage others effectively and not have to go too much outside of the team is a good thing. I will also tell you that the, the type of individual, because that's a natural outgrowth of this discussion, was what kind of individual makes a good ABMer. Tell you what doesn't make a good ABMer, somebody who's just starting out, you know, because it's a lot of uh, people thinking, oh, great, you know, this could be a nice little growing area for young ABMers or young marketers. The answer is no. You need to have somebody who has really some level of experience, at least five, seven years of experience in marketing to have witnessed marketing science and art in different forms because I'm asking them to be a mini CMO. So it's the same way you wouldn't hire a CMO out of finance because they don't understand the various functions of marketing, you wouldn't put an ABMer in ABM unless they have had some experience in the other areas of marketing. And they're knowledgeable enough about how marketing works to be that middle person between sales and marketing. They are truly looked at as the go-to person for the sales team. Uh, so I want them to be a truly strong representative of the marketing function. And very importantly, not everybody can hang with sales. You know, you can have an award-winning marketer, best marketer you've ever had, and not have the right personality to work with sales. You need to have somebody who has the personality to work with sales. They're going to be dealing with a bunch of type A personalities. And oh, by the way, it's not just any salesperson. These are the top salespeople in the company. Why? Because these are the top opportunities for the company. So with top salespeople come 
you know, high level of expectations on their part, very low attention span on their part. So, and, and you need to be able as a marketer to know when to push back, know when to listen, know when to speak. It's an important part of the cadence is you put people in there that know how to carry their weight with sales and they know how to interact with sales. In a previous conversation on this podcast uh, with Matt Senator from Serious Decisions and Steve Casey from Forrester, one of them, I can't remember which one it was now, it was such an interesting and dynamic conversation, but one of them said it's super important that there be a clear ABM leader within an organization. And they've seen a number of cases where the absence of that leader has, has led to a lot of problems. Now, you mentioned a roughly 20-person ABM team amid all these other teams. Do those 20 people all roll up to one ABM leader, or do you see that differently? Uh, no, I definitely see it that way. And yes, they do roll up to a single leader. Uh, she's the head of marketing programs for us. And again, pursued marketing, ABM, and marketing programs uh, or dementia campaigns seen under her. So it's very important to have this is this is a cadence and a discipline that's very unique, and it needs to have a leader. Absolutely. Here's the most important thing because I think I thought that's where you were going. In addition to organizationally having it under a single leader, is keep in mind these ABMers work with accounts that are usually global in nature, right? So. Sometimes these pursuits of these accounts obviously have headquarters in a region, they have locations in other regions, they're working with events marketing in some cases, they're working with regional marketing, they're working with PR, if we need to go do something with that account with PR. But it's very important that that ABMer is the single point of contact back to the account. There's no faster way to screw up an ABM organization than to let that happen organically, meaning, oh, you know, there's a discussion with this account, but it's happening in Germany. So let's, let's let the German marketing team deal with that. And, oh, by the way, they need some, some press. Okay, let's let them work directly with press. Your job as an ABMer is to play that gatekeeper role and that coordinator because it's important to the sales team to have a single point of contact. The minute the sales team starts to work with multiple points of contact in marketing, things break down. And and traditionally, that very dynamic where that ABM team needs to maintain that control sometimes could be controversial. And it can cause a little bit of friction unless you set it up right away in the beginning and say, look, even though it's happening in your patch, it's happening in your region, this particular deal is with an account that we are working with. So we're going to take the lead. We're going to keep you in the loop if you're in regional marketing or if you're in event marketing or if you're content marketing and you're doing some work for that account. We're going to keep you in the loop, but it's going to come to us. Because otherwise, again, many, many things can go wrong if you don't have a single throat to choke uh, if you're sales. And, you know, that's an important dynamic. And that's how you build trust. We talked about trust in the beginning. That's all about trust, right? Because if all of a sudden you leadership of that particular account or that pursuit happen in many different places and somebody screws up somewhere, it's your neck on the line, right? As an ABMer, you don't, you don't want that to happen. Plus, you're the only one as an ABMer who has full context of that sales strategy and the dynamics we talked about before, knowing when to speak and when not to speak, when to be active and when to be inactive as a marketing team. And not everybody in the organization has the same sensitivity that you have as an ABMer 
because you've been there from the glimmer in the eye on, right? So you have that sensitivity, right? Nick, thank you so much for your time today. This has been wonderful. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. I've learned a lot. I'm sure that the listeners have as well. You know, my uh, colleague at Quarry, Richard Hill, came back from the Serious Decisions Summit. And he said, you know, there are a lot of good speakers there, but you really got to talk to Nick. Uh, you know, he was super impressed with a lot of the stories and the insights that you shared and the positions that you take on important topics within ABM and within B2B marketing more broadly. And he was absolutely right. So I very much appreciate you taking the time to speak with, uh, with us today. It's been my, my real pleasure to get to know you a bit, Nick. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for making the time. Really appreciate it. Stangram here. All right. You already might have heard that I launched my newest book, ABM is B2B. So I want to give you a gift for being a podcast listener for some of you have been listening it for the whole year and a half and, and send me so many messages. So I want to gift you. I want to gift you a copy of the book. I'm not asking you to buy. I'm literally gifting you the copy of the book. So if you text me at 33777 with the keyword ABM is B2B, simple as that. Text me when you get a chance. Don't, don't drive and text like when you stop. It will be in the show notes. So just take a look at it. The keyword is ABM is B2B and text me that keyword at 33777. It will add, ask you for a physical address so I can ship you the book. And I just want to say thank you. I am super excited. Hopefully I can uh, get this book to as many of you who have been a loyal listeners and evangelist of the Flip Platform Podcast. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.